the known universe with its heroes and marvels. But what of the darkness? In our modern world, this is where monsters dwell. Welcome to Believers to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. My name is James Hickson. And I'm Trey Lawson. And this is part two of our man our giant size man thing tacular. Sure. We didn't think of a good of clever name for this. We didn't. Um, but we we got a cool guest, so I guess that. That makes up for it. That's right. So um, this is a very special episode for us because in addition to talking about Man-Thing 7, sorry, Man-Thing Volume 3, 7, 8, and then Strange uh, Tales. Strange Tales 1 and 2, Volume 4, yep. 1 and 2, and, and Spider-Man Annual, nine, Peter Parker Spider-Man Annual 99. Yeah, it kind of gets to be a mess, but (laughs) publishing from Marvel in the late 90s got weird. Yeah, they they were they were throwing things at the wall in terms of titles. And and unfortunately, it seems like Man Thing by Night were characters who uh, had to jump around from title to title a lot. Right. So in addition to Man Thing, Volume 3, Issues 7 and 8, we have Strange Tales, Volume 4, Issues 1 through 2. And then we have Peter Parker Spider-Man Annual 99, as in 1999, not Annual 99, because right. I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure the book has not been going for 99 years. No, I, I think there's like one other annual. Yeah, uh, but the 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 all of these are in fact uh, in sequence the continued story of what starts in, and they are written by one man, and of course is. Marvel legend J.M. Demetrius, and he will be joining us. I I knew him as a DC guy for what? Okay, I know him from his Marvel work. Okay, just saying. Like, does League International much? Fine. Comic book legend J.M. Demetrius. Are you happy? <laughs> are you happy now, Trey? Better that we had this argument before we let him into the Zoom. I yeah. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> But we're going to take a quick break while I um, remind Trey, who's boss around here. And actually, we don't have a boss. So but Gravely is the boss still. So I don't know. Right. <laughs> you know what? We're taking a break. Not from the show because we did it already. But we're taking a We'll be right back <laughs> after these messages. And a good cry. Hey, Sean, do you want to go over the checklist to make sure we are ready for the next phase of the Batman family reunion? Sure thing, Paul. Robin and Batgirl in team-up action? Check. Fried chicken? Check. Man-Bat fighting a were-jaguar? Check. Deviled eggs? Check. Potato salad? Check. Without the raisins? Of course. The Huntress fighting Catwoman and Poison Ivy? Check. Lemonade? Check. Alfred and Commissioner Gordon keeping a secret from Ruth Wayne? Check and check. Reprints or all new stories? New stories and reprints until issue 10, and then nothing but brand new stories from there on out. 
giant sized issues? A mere giant size until issue 16 and then dollar comics from issue 17 to 20 through the end of the run in Detective. Guest list? Absolutely. We are having a number of bat relatives visit the reunion. So listen in for your favorite bat cousin. All right, great. Then we're all ready for the Batman Family Reunion Podcast, where we talk about Batman Family, the great comic book from the 70s and 80s. We'll discuss not only the stories, but also the text pages and ads, and we'll also find out what the Batman family was doing on the newsstands that month. And since this is a reunion, we're inviting all of you, the Bat kinfolk, to listen in and to be part of the show. Look for the Batman Family Reunion Podcast on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Challenge your imagination to come alive and to battle with the creatures of Dungeons and Dragons. Grapple against the forces of evil as a Marvel Comics superhero. Hunt adventure and glory as Indiana Jones. The all-new role-playing games of TSR and Dungeons and Dragons. Unleash the power of your imagination. Welcome back to, and you're listening to Tomb of Ideas. I'm going to try and summarize issues seven and eight of Man Thing Volume Three, along with the follow-up stories from Strange Tales Volume Four, issues one and two, and wrap things up with Spider-Man and uh, Peter Parker Spider-Man Annual Ninety-Nine. Um, okay, so when we left off, Howard the Duck had barely survived his encounter with Cult of Entropy but Man-Thing was almost totally spent from saving Howard's life. Uh, and so the uh, husk of Man-Thing, which appears to be dead or dying, has collapsed on top of Howard the Duck and get out. Just then, Namor arrives, the Submariner, and he's wearing his weird armor that he had in the mid to late 90s, uh, which apparently, if I'm remembering, was because he was afflicted with some curse that prevented him from water this armor really allowed him to breathe under so he's there in his in his weird 90s uh and namor has been drawn to swamp outside citrusville in order to find the man uh he had this this vision this dream that pulled him toward the man thing the man thing is essential to saving not just atlantis but all which is familiar is very much uh what seems to have been going on with with uh visions and dreams um howard recognizing that this book only has room for one guest at a time, leaves for Cleveland, and Namor takes over. Uh, Man-Thing, having revived, takes up the staff, the magic staff that Ellen had in the previous issue, and the staff speaks through the Man-Thing. Um, and so it opens a vortex, a portal, uh, that takes Namor and the thing the depths of the earth. Meanwhile, uh, Terminus and Job, the kid, uh, are discussing songs of the universe. It's all very trippy and weird, and the visuals are, um, and it's very hard to follow. But they are talking about destiny and lineage, and it seems like in some way this child has been born to fulfill a very specific and terminus. Maybe wants to subvert that purpose. Um, Man-Thing and Namor arrive uh, uh, near Atlantis, and Man-Thing has transformed itself into sort of a, a, a sea thing. He's got kind of manta ray wings and, and uh, a mermaid or manatee tail or something. He has become aquatic. And they encounter a sea creature that is actually Ellen. Ellen has been already summoned by 
uh, one of the gods of Atlantis, Evanor. And Evanor transformed Ellen into a uh, fish person so that she could... Um, and while Man-Thing and Namor are there to retrieve uh, a shard of the Nexus of Realities of the universe, um, Evanor does not want them to do because that shard of the Nexus embedded in a uh, shroud of Pleito, uh, the Divine Mother of Atlantis. And, and it is heresy to remove a gem from that shroud. Um, and they're sort of at a standoff for a while until Man-Thing finds an alternate path. And um, at some point during all of this, Evanor separates Ted Salas from Man-Thing. Ted Salas sort of emerges inside a, a oxygen bubble, demanding to know what's going on. Um, and in that moment, Salas sort of freaks out because he has not been conscious. The stuff that Man-Thing has been up to has not really existed. But he recognizes Ellen uh, and in a mo- in that moment of recognition, uh, realizes the betrayal all those years ago, and starts to attack her. But Namor has a stop to that. That this is not the time or the place uh, revisiting the past, which is ironic because not long after that, Ted Salas uses the magic staff to send them into the distant past. Um, they arrive at Atlantis when it was above water, and when. The Holy Mother was very much alive. And so the Shroud is, and the Holy Mother being alive gift uh, the the gem of uh, the Nexus of Realities so that it doesn't have to be taken away. Uh, this is all seeming to set up some interesting stuff for Namor later on. Um, not that it pays off in this title, but it seems like it was setting up some things that other books might pick up later. Um, the... Uh, Holy Mother calls Namor her favorite son, that her blessing is always upon him, um, and that his greatest achievements lie ahead of him. Uh, and with that, they return to the present with the the fragment of the Nexus. And uh, Evanor is angry, um, but because Namor clearly has the blessing of the Holy Mother, Evanor can't about it. And so Namor and Man-Thing go their separate ways. Ellen human again uh ted salas and man thing at some point in all that get remerged into one being um and with that man thing volume three and uh the the solicitation at the end of the book the setup next beyond the farthest star guest starring the silver surfer we end on a panel of man thing and on an alien planet with two moons in the sky the stars in the wrong place and no idea how they got and in order to find out what happens and how the Silver Surfer figures into it, you have to switch over to a different title. And so we get to Strange Things Volume 4, Stra- Strange Tales Volume 4, number 1. Uh, we're only talking about the first half of this Strange Tales title because it, it was split between uh, Man-Thing and Werewolf. Um, uh, but Strange I wanted Ta- Hopper. <laughs> uh, Strange Tales Volume 4, number 1. Uh reveals to us that this distant planet that Man-Thing and Ellen have been drawn to. Ellen, by the way, now starting to look more and more like a sort of Dungeons and Dragons fantasy character. Um, As they've collected shards of the Nexus, they have been added to a mystic necklace that she wears around her neck. Uh, She now has this sort of cloak that she's wearing. Um, It's all very 90s fantasy. Um, I'm pretty sure you could buy all of this on Etsy right now. Uh, so she and Man-Thing are on this alien planet. It turns out that a shard of the Nexus embedded itself in this previously lifeless planet 
And because of that shard of the Nexus, this planet has become a paradise. And the Silver Surfer, drawn to this sudden explosion of life on the planet, uh, has made it his mission to protect them. And so, much as Evanor stood in the way of the previous shard, now Silver Surfer stands between Man-Thing and uh, this uh, shard of the Nexus on this alien planet. Meanwhile, the parents of Job, the little boy, are still trying to find their kid. Uh, somewhere in all of this, the kid disappeared. Uh, Terminus took him. Um, we see that happen. They don't really see that happen, but they know the name Terminus, and they keep having visions of him. Um, they have gone to Citrusville because all of the weirdness originated when they had a brief encounter with Man-Thing way back in issue one of Volume 3. Um, this sheriff uh, also encountered Man-Thing in that issue, as did... Uh, Another man who's present, uh, Owen Jackson, previously the town drunk, but since his encounter with Man-Thing, is horribly scarred like El, um, has his own thoughts and is about Man-Thing. But back on the alien planet, Silver Surfer takes Ellen to see uh, the life that has been created by the shard of the Nexus, the, the fragment of the Nexus, and explains why he is planning to defend it. Ellen, at this point, agrees with the Silver Surfer and tries to talk Man-Thing and the Magic Staff out of uh, seizing the shard, but uh, Man-Thing, through the Magic Staff, seals Ellen inside of a, a crystal prison. Man-Thing goes to take the, the fragment of the Nexus, but Silver Surfer intercepts him, and they fight. We've got ourselves a good old-fashioned uh, Silver Surfer blasts Man-Thing with Power Cosmic, Man-Thing... Uh, retaliates with energy from the staff. Um, it's all very cool. Uh, also, at some point during all this, Man-Thing sprouted wings because why not? Um, and during this fight, Ellen comes to the realization that even as she admires and appreciates the Silver Surfer's willingness to fight for a lost cause, she recognizes that it is a lost cause and that the fragment of the Nexus... And so while Man-Thing and the Surfer fight, Ellen takes the fragment. Um, she also seems to realize in this moment that this is why she was able to get out of that that crystal prison in the that Man-Thing wanted her to take during the diversion because Man-Thing could not bring himself to, to take it uh, directly. Um, there's a really sad image and crying. Um, then uh, we end with a teaser for the next issue with uh, Mr. Terminus looking especially Loki-like with, with pearl horns coming off his forehead, uh, arriving in Citrusville with Job, confronting the sheriff and Job's adopted. Um, and that is the end of the Man-Thing story in Strange Tales 1. Strange Tales 2 begins with that exact same scene um, and sort of plays it out again uh, with Terminus promising the end of all things. Job's adopted mother rushes out to greet son, cries out, my son, my sweet son. And then Ellen and Man-Thing show up and shouts, he's not your son. Um, and we get a little bit of recap in this issue, uh, but then Terminus offers them their child back, um, but Job refuses to go with his adoptive. Um, he says, you're not my mother, all you are is a And he starts to fade the Man-Thing, or at least the staff speaking through the Man-Thing, tells Job to stop, um, and Job obeys. The mother, the adopted mother, reappears. Um, Man-Thing confronts Terminus. They uh, 
have a brief fight, or at least Man-Thing punches him in the face. Uh, and it seems like they are on opposite sides of this, this cosmic um, Terminus is planning to erase all of reality and uh, the the consciousness of that is embedded in the staff that is speaking through Man-Thing is trying to preserve it. Um, all of this seems to have something to do with Job and is drawn to Ellen uh, rather than his adopted. Um, but he rushes to Ellen. The embrace turns out to be a trick because Job took the necklace, the fragments of the nexus. Terminus tells the boy to bring the necklace to him and Job tells him to go to Hades and keeps the necklace himself and demands to know the truth. Um, and this is where things get really logical, I guess. Um, <laughs> so it turns out that Ted Salas is the man of the... Uh, so the the consciousness in the staff is apparently Ka'admon um, and Ted Salas's family going back generations apparently are supposed to be the dreamers and it is necessary that they fulfill this dreaming quality or else reality starts to unravel um and, and so there are a lot of pauses here you can edit out <laughs> yes sorry i'm th- these books also get really really prose heavy yes like like it basically becomes an illustrated novel yes um so in the beginning oh boy <laughs> the universe was created um and the stars took shape and uh and the staff which is what's been carried around and has been speaking through man thing all this time is part of this initial creation um and from that staff came light um and from that light the dream the idea is that on some level all of reality all of creation as we understand it is effectively uh due to this cosmic uh cosmic um and from the staff the first land formed from the land the first woman was formed um and this this first woman is referred to as uh Leito, who came up in previous issues the mother of all things uh the embodiment of um from that uh, mother of all things came the first man, the mate, uh, and that was Ka'admon, the first man. And it's from Ka'admon that uh, other men of the lineage were born, and everyone else would get to sort of enjoy the majestic illusion, the dream of existence. But the man of the lineage was burdened with the knowledge that the dream was, and it was the responsibility of each man of the lineage to accept this burden. And when it came time, evidently, Ted Salas rejected this. He turned his back on it. Uh, and it, it's implied that him his becoming Man-Thing is in part a kind of cosmic punishment for refusing that burden. But now, Job, who is the only son of Ted Salas, is the next in line to be uh, the man of the lineage. Um, and Terminus argues that at this point, it is time for everything to end. That Ted Salas, in rejecting the role of the dreamer, has ruptured reality, that the, the shattering of the Nexus is in part his fault, and that now it's time for the dream end. But just then, Sorrow and Eric Payne, uh, the, uh, the Devil Slayer, uh, show up um, in their sort of cosmic forms from the, the end of their last appearance, 
Um, and they accuse Terminus of lying, um, that, that all of this uh, is in fact still able to be fixed, that it's just a matter of, uh, of actually understanding correctly the nature of all of these prophetic things. But unfortunately, we don't actually get the ending of that story because Strange Tales Volume Volume Four ended with issue number two, so we don't get the rest of that story. Yeah, Instead, it, it got canceled. Yes, they solicited additional issues. Apparently, they were written, or at least one issue was written. Written, and the scripts are out there. Um, yeah, but we don't have them. But but no, but they're they're out there. Maybe we maybe we could ask some about yeah. some of what was supposed to happen. Well, let's let's put that on there. But yeah, um, right. should we just talk about, I guess, the man thing series at this point? Um, do we want to stop there or do you want to do the Spider-Man issue too? Let's stop there and then we'll get get into the okay. Spider-Man issue in a second. Okay, so that was that was all of Man-Thing Volume 3 plus the Strange Tales combo book that, that put the two titles together. Yep. Uh, we didn't talk about the Werewolf by Night parts. Um, no, no. We'll, we'll, we'll maybe some other time. Yeah, don't worry. We're not done talking about Jack. I mean, come on. You know we love Jack Russell. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> but I really like the series. It's good. It's it really good. It continues to be good. It, um, it, I love the, the stuff with Namor. Yeah, we got a Namor thing in. We got a Namor thing in just for just in time for um, his appearance in Wakanda Forever, Forever on Friday. Yeah. Um, Woo, which is yes. Um, and aside from his weird 90s armor, I like the look of Namor. Yes. He looks powerful. He honestly, it's a, it's a nice, it's a nice sort of like blend of his early appearances and his nineties. Yes, it is. He honestly doesn't look that different, that different from what he does in the movie that's no, coming out. No, not at all. It's, it's interesting. Yeah, um, the pointy years, the, I, I love the, I love the way his hair is. It's a, it's a little thing, but, but he's got great, almost like Jack Nickel. Um, but I really like his interactions with Howard. I wish we kind of got yes. more with Namor and Howard. Right. Because it's really weird. I, I, but I also, I, and I was joking, but it really does sort of feel like Howard realizes, oh, wait, the new guest star arrived. Time for me to exit. <laughs> so, okay. It feels like we're getting guest stars like for two issue arcs and then they're leaving. Like Demon Slayer was, Doctor Strange was one. Then we had Demon Slayer. Doctor Strange shows up in issues one and two. So, so that was, that's the first. Yep. Then we have Demon Slayer, which has it for three. Right. Then we had Howard a Duck. Then right. we had, and he's just a one shot, really. He shows up at the beginning of of the the Namor issue, but he's really a one shot. And then we have Namor, and yep. then we're supposed to have Silver Surfer. Surfer, and we kind of do. Although, does it seem right. to me like the first few pages of the Strange Tales issue were written at the time when this was going to be uh, Man Thing number nine? And then they got the word that the book was canceled. And then they got the word that they were going to bring it back as part of Strange Tales. Because Liam Sharp's style jumps a lot between pages eight and nine of this book. Yeah. Yes. Um, is that is that where it goes from the alien planet to the stuff on Earth? Yes. Yes. Um, so I, I, it is possible that he is making a visual distinction um, between... The, the alien stuff and the earthly stuff. The earthly stuff looks more sort of photorealistic. But the issue with that, but when we return... Is then we keep that style for the rest of the book. Yes, including the alien stuff. I, I think you're right. I think prob you're, you're probably right that they had 
the book was already scripted as as man thing number nine i this is my I mean, we can we can ask the man himself in just a little bit but my guess would be it was already scripted work had begun on the book it was set aside and then picked up again yep and it's the 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 after page eight or so also almost looks more it looks more digital i could see that like the 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 use of blurring especially in the backgrounds yeah looks like a, a sort of filter effect yep and kind of like the the gloss we get and the, the way the light is on some parts of it right yeah that 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 late 90s digital coloring where they're just playing with things like that yeah and, and i like it like it's a good look but you're right there is a very distinct shift partway through the title yep i think so so then we get this really weird finale yep trey do you have any idea what's going on in this finale so it, it is we are essentially retconning the origin of man okay uh, everything that happened happened uh-huh. but ted salas has cosmic significance beyond having injected himself with a super okay um so going back to the beginning of creation um <laughs> your face right now um god <laughs> want to use that term the the book does at various times but then sometimes doesn't want uh god um creates the universe or dreams the universe is really what it seems like um and uh as part of this creation um the staff and that staff that that everyone's been carrying around and has been talking through man thing seems to be the first creation and from the staff is the land and from the land comes the light and from the light comes the first woman the mother of all things and from the mother of all things comes um, the man of the lineage. And the first man of the lineage is Ka'admon, um, which has to be a kind of a joke. Uh, well, maybe not joke, but it, it seems like a deliberate reference. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we can maybe get into this later. Well, no, I'm going to talk about it now, because okay. why not? Um, so I'm going to put on my medievalist hat for a minute. Um, one of the earliest... English poems, an old English poem called Cadman's. And the story of Cadman's hymn was that supposedly an illiterate cowherder with no musical ability miraculously and suddenly manifested the ability to recite and sing poetry. And what he sang was a creation of the earth and celebrating God's creation. Um, and so it seems notable that Cadman who seems to exist as part of this magical staff is responsible for preserving the dream of creation and does through, does so partly through. Wow. This is why I'm happy to have someone with a master's degree on the show, you know, <laughs> master Trey Lawson, ladies um, and gentlemen. So, but Admon, Cadman, um, is the first man of the lineage and all of Cadman's descendants are tasked with bearing the burden of knowing that existence is, that that existence is a is the dream of the, so that no one else has to. And Ted Salas was destined to be the next dream. He is of the lineage of Cadman, but he turned his back on that. And it's implied that he turned his back on it as a child, like at about the age that Job was. Um, but he he refused it, and in refusing it, seems to have sealed his fate to the the punishment, the cosmic uh, curse of being the man thing. And still, in his own way, having to guard reality by by standing at the nexus of realities. So, so that that's what's going on here. 
that Ted Salas is now part of this cosmic lineage uh, that is responsible for protecting Kree. Should we talk about the Spider-Man issue? We should. We should. Parker, Spider-Man, Annual 99. Oh, boy. Song of the Man-Thing. Um, so, at this point, Man-Thing is, like, bleach white and still holding the magic staff. Yes. Things have happened between this, the previous story we just talked about, and this story. Right. So this story basically pretends like Strange Tales was never canceled. Yes. And that the solicited issues came out. Yes. Um, and we cut from a sort of recap of who Man-Thing is um, and, and his relationship to Cadmon and all that um, to Peter Parker having a meal with his Aunt May and his Uncle Ben and his wife Gwen and her parents, I guess. George um, Stacey, yeah. Her father. Yep. Uh, Yes, uh, Captain Stasek. Yeah, uh, and they are having dinner on uh, an upper floor of the World Trade Center. Yep. And in that moment, something attacks the other tower—not the one they're in, but another tower. Yep. And everyone panics, and Peter Parker runs off to change into Spider-Man. Except he doesn't have a costume on under his clothes—not a superhero. Um, but. He knows that he's supposed to help people, so he rushes, and he leaps from the building, swing over to the other tower to help, except he has no web shooters, and he falls and plummets, and just then he wakes up from his nightmare. Uh, Peter Parker goes downstairs, he talks to his May, um, and he, talk, he talks about how things just feel like they're not quite right. That not-quite-rightness is something that is rippling through all of reality, uh, including deep in the nexus of all realities which is currently held stable by the embrace, the cosmic embrace of Ed Salas and Ellen Salas, uh, formerly Ellen. Uh, and it seems that at some point between the issue of Strange Tales we read and this issue, they sacrificed their corporeal form and merged with the Nexus collectively uh, in order to stabilize and preserve it. It's kind of like when... Uh, Commander Decker and Ilea at the end of Star Trek The Motion Picture uh, embrace and are absorbed into the <laughs> uh, But this not-quite-rightness about reality, something being wrong, uh, pulls Ted Salas out of this sort of cosmic harmony, and he feels that the need to return corporeal existence to investigate. Um, meanwhile, Spider-Man swings through the city, uh, and finds out that the Scryers, the European cult that was led by Norman Osborn, are gathering in New York to investigate. Um, the Scryers are confused because none of them seem to know who it was that called them all together. But then, uh, the true Scryer uh, and claims to be the most powerful of them all, and that he has a purpose that they fathom. Um, to prove his power seemingly vaporizes one of his followers, but, uh, says that he actually transported them uh, or he converted them into a primal gaseous state, devolved the person uh, and so now they have to start their climb up the evolutionary ladder again which I don't think is how biology is but no? um, Scryer uh, calls for a volunteer and one of his disciples steps forward and is deemed the outrider who is tasked with going into the nexus of realities uh, to achieve some Spider-Man intervenes though and attacks uh, he takes out all of the Scryers except for the Outrider and the one true Scryer, but 
uh, before Spider-Man can fight them, the one true scryer hypnotizes Spider-Man and causes him to forget everything just happened. And so Spider-Man goes home. Uh, <laughs> meanwhile, Ted Salas returns to reality in the form of the man, um, which seems like a really unpleasant experiment. The art gets really weird. And, um, scryer and the outrider discuss their plans. Uh, essentially, um, Scryer reveals that he has deliberately drawn Ted Salas into the world as Man-Thing so that the Outrider can go into the Nexus while Ellen is the only person there to... Uh, and so his purpose is to push Ellen out of the Nexus into some sort of cosmic limbo so that the Outrider and the Scryer can take control of all reality to remake reality as they... Man-Thing appears in front of uh, Spider-Man um, Spider-Man, uh, especially because Man-Thing is still bleach white, um, which is something that none of the Marvel heroes have seen before, I imagine. And Man-Thing helps Spider-Man remember everything that the Scryer forced him to. Um, they go off, uh, the Nexus, and essentially Spider-Man agrees to go through, uh, the, the sort of cosmic tunnel between worlds while Man-Thing confronts the Scryer. So Scryer versus Man, Outrider versus Spider-Man. Um, but the Outrider has a head start. Um, Spider-Man is not necessarily acclimated to this kind of cosmic interdimensional travel. And so Spider-Man gets pushed through the wall of the tunnel and emerges in a reality where he became the host of a late night show. Still is Spider-Man, but hosting a late night comic. Uh, and also he's kind of a jerk. Uh, his... Aunt May and Uncle Ben are still alive, um, but he behaves horribly to the people around him. And thinking about his Aunt May and Uncle Ben uh, cause Peter to snap out of this reality and go back toward the... T um, but instead of ending up back in, in between worlds, he ends up in a reality where Uncle Ben is about to be killed by the mugger. And so Peter Parker jumps in front of the gun and takes the bullet dying for his uncle, and in dying, uh, shifts realities again uh, to, to continue his pursuit. Um, meanwhile, Man-Thing and the Scryer have this kind of philosophical debate about what the Scryer's true purposes are, uh, and the Man-Thing proposes, or Scryer actually, proposes a bargain. Let the humans decide their own fate. If Outrider succeeds, Scryer gets to take control of the Nexus. If Spider-Man succeeds, Man thing gets to um and so we go back to back into the Nexus where Spider-Man arrives too late to stop Outrider, but uh undaunted, Spider-Man throws himself into the center of the Nexus. And so the wills of Spider-Man and the Outrider are competing for control of the Nexus, with Spider-Man uh emphasizing all of the sort of wonderful things about all of the the reasons to treasure and, and appreciate this reality while the Outrider sort of raging against all of the injustices and problems and, and uh, evils of reality. But it turns out that all of this is actually a diversion on Man-Thing's part, because during all of this, Man-Thing actually absorbed the Nexus into himself um, to, to protect it further from Scryer's intervention. Um, Scryer accuses Man-Thing of cheating, and Man-Thing says, Admon gave his word. Ted Salas did not. And it was Ted Salas who decided to uh, So, Scryer suggests that maybe this was all part of his plan to begin with. 
the man thing is left alone. Um, meanwhile, Peter Parker goes home, Aunt May and Mary Jane. Already his memory of his time inside the Nexus of Realities is but the man thing. Ah, uh, the Scryers. I had forgotten they were. Yeah. Um, this is a weird era for Spider-Man. For comics. everyone. Yeah, for everyone. Um, apparently, you know, Ted and Ellen join with the Nexus in order right? to stabilize it. Like, like as you beautifully put, like Star Trek the motion picture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, <laughs> am I wrong? No, that's that they, they have joined the feature. Um, but we don't we don't ever get to see that. And in fact, no, no. this is the last appearance of that version of Man Thing. Yes. And I don't think the next appearance acknowledges any. No, it does not. Uh, but yes, uh, there is actually on the uh, the title page, the the uh, the splash page, um, the the captions that say, "At the center of this world, that is every world, that is no world, are two souls born in humanity, two hearts in perfect union, Ted and Ellen Salas, who gave up their existence on Earth to merge with the become it." Their very life forces made one with it, each other. And there's an asterisk. And at the bottom, it says, in the as yet unpublished final issues of the late lamented story. Is this the, this is the only time I have ever seen a continuity reference to an unpublished comic. Right. Yes. Same. It, Wild. It, it's a, we've got to ask our guest about this because, oh. And yet it also feels very right. Like it feels appropriate to the tone of all of these books. Okay, that, that kind of leads into my question here. So, is the whole thing about the Dreamer a metaphor for the nature of the Marvel Universe? Possibly. So that's a thing that does get mentioned in Strange Tales, is that... Oh, how does it get phrased? It's really weird. Um, there's there's a line about that, that that suggests something sort of... What we tell you now, the bro- the book proclaimed, you may take as myth or allegory, but know that even... If every word we speak is a lie, the essence of what we communicate here is the unquestionable truth. So still your hearts now, still your minds, and hear our tale. So take it as myth, take it as allegory. It may or may not literally be true, but it is the story of creation in the Marvel. Interesting. Which is a, a, a nice sort of way out of saying whether you're retcon said. And I know I'm jumping all over the place here, but this was an interesting era for Spider-Man. Yes. This is the era right after the Clone Saga. Right. This is immediately post Ben Riley. Like right. Ben Riley had just melted into a post post um, losing the baby. Yep. Yep. Whether you believe that she lost the baby through miscarriage or through Norman Osborn being a dick, up to you. Right. But all of this stuff is in the very recent past. Yes. This is that weird era between the Clone Saga. And the reboot. Yep. Which, if you don't, well, it's rem- even even to, to narrow it even further. It is the time between the Clone Saga and the Straczynski. Yes. The yes. other. Remember the other. I remember the other. I I, I had a subscription to Spider Man during the other. <laughs> Who would have thought Moreland would become such a big deal? Uh, 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 other than Straczynski, Dan Slott apparently. But uh, but yeah. Like I, I had completely forgotten about this because I really had. Yep. I forgot all about them. We'll have to ask our guest about the Scryers. Does he create the Scryers? Yes. And and it seems like there was an intention here to give them a greater purpose beyond Norman Osborne's 
Yes. Like by creating a new leader. Yes. Who apparently first appeared in a Silver Surfer comic. Interesting. So he is um, he is the cosmic scryer. Right. And don't the uh, scryers end up being revealed to be like a bunch of actors that later on? Uh I so I know that initially they claim to be an ancient order that is that predates Galactus. Like that that's one of the arguments is that the cult of the scryers or the cabal, whatever they were, that that they predated Atlantis, like they predated all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I know almost all of their appearances were in Spider-Man, but I think the cosmic scryer had appeared. Okay, so we had Scryer, the original Scryer, who appeared in the Clone Saga as a friend of Judas Traveler. Remember Judas Traveler? Uh, I remember Judas Traveler. Yeah, that's that good Ben Riley stuff right there. Yeah, and then it was revealed he's part of this of this Brotherhood of the Cabal. So no, he they don't end up being actors. They 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 get revealed as this cult like Brotherhood led by Norman Osborn. Um, um, also, there's that really unfortunate dream sequence in the beginning of the comic. Yeah, that hasn't aged. No, I mean, that doesn't age well for two years after the publication right. of the comic. Right. Although it's not alone in that regard. I mean, I think there was like a Eiffeld book. One of the, the there was another Marvel book in the 90s that had like, or not attack the Twin Towers. Oh yeah, and X-Force and Spider-Man had to stop him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the one. Yep. So, Spider-Man, not a great track record in, uh, protecting no oh no 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 but like i saw that happen and the way it happens in that dream sequence i had to flip back a few pages like what year was this published yep 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 it's fun fact uh scryer most recently appeared in a mighty thor annual in 2012 of course he did (laughs) (laughs) so what did we think of peter parker annual 99 so so here's the thing. I, I'm going to start, and this is with all due respect, because I actually enjoyed most of this book. I thought it was a fun read. But a thing that I often think about is how every comic is someone's first comic. <laughs> and I'm just imagining the person for whom this was their first Spider-Man comic. Yeah. Because that would, like, that would, this is a weird, like, it's a weird Spider-Man comic. It's a weird Spider-Man It makes comic. total sense. It makes total sense as a main thing. Comic. Yeah. It would even make sense as an issue of Spider-Man Team-Up. Yes, yes. But the but. F- fact that it's Peter Parker Spider-Man Annual, it's weird. Right. The The Peter Parker stuff is a little bit shoehorned in. Yeah. Like, like it all makes sense. Like, it, it's not... So, when I say that, it's not shoehorned the way that that Spider-Man Dracula crossover was, where it was literally like two different comics were taking place. Yeah. This at least interconnects. Yeah. Like there is there is collaboration between these characters. They are on a coll- a mission together. But it is a little bit like there are the man thing pages of the Spider-Man. Yeah. That I have to think that an annual is an opportunity for a book to not be directly connected to like the continuity of the ongoing story. Like it doesn't have to be in line with where the previous issue left off. Right. And and so can be an opportunity to maybe use that book to tie up some loose ends that were left dangling elsewhere. <laughs> you just imagine it would be like from a Spider-Man comic book. Right. Well, and the Scryer is, Scryers are from a Spider-Man comic book. They are indeed. So the villain ties into Spider-Man. I, I also just can't help but, again, we noted this with the, the Strange Tales stuff. 
Liam Sharp really does seem to be experimenting with digital art yes. at this stage, at this stage of things. And sort of 98, 99, yeah. all of the stuff in the Nexus is is very much like late 90s digital art. Like every every page that's inside the Nexus kind of looks like a cover from Sandman. Yes. But that but that said, I, I like that stuff. But that said, the 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 sort of more conventional Spider-Man stuff looks cool. Yeah, that's artist Al Rio. Oh, on the Spider-Man pages? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's not Sharp. Sharp does the stuff in the Nexus. In right. Nexus. And I, I noted I, I noticed the two different styles. I, I guess I missplit in terms of Yeah. Um and Al Rio, I I believe, does the real world stuff. Okay. That makes sense. Um and both look very good. Yeah. Really good. Um in fact that that uh fight scene between Spider-Man and Spryers is actually a lot of fun. It doesn't take it's not very long. It's like a page, but but it's fun. It looks- yeah. Honestly, with it being part of the Man Thing story that we've been reading, it's a fun issue. If you were just a Spider-Man reader who who came to this issue, you might wonder what the heck was going on. Well, and I mean, the that those first two pages of caption boxes are doing an awful lot of heavy lifting. Yeah, the, it seems like the further we go into the Man Thing story, the more heavy lifting the captions are doing. Right, because there's so much to fill in because you can't count on the readers read any of it because some of it wasn't even published. Also, um, Liam Sharp is getting more experimental. It's very abstract. With his art. So the caption is helping readers make sense of the art, basically. Right. It, it, there is a le- it's not as clearly left to right top to bottom kind of panel layouts like it, it's things are sort of merging together and it's very collagey and it looks awesome yeah i like it a lot um i love the design of spider-man inside the nexus uh before he goes into the late night show stuff like the very sort of lanky angular spindly spider-man yeah yep or as in the in the sort of real world or even in the the sort of dreamy stuff that is a real world um i mean spider-man looks like he walked right out of the enemy which is cool it is anyway i think that's actually a good point to take a quick break and when we come back we'll be talking with the writer of this man thing odyssey we've been on (laughs) jm dimiteus right after these messages hyperion to a satyr Follow Siskoid's deep scene-by-scene dive into adaptations of Shakespeare's Hamlet on Hyperion to a Satyr, the Fire and Water Network's Hamlet podcast. To listen or not to listen isn't the question, as you well know. Kenneth Branagh, Derek Jacobi, Mel Gibson, Lawrence Olivier, Ethan Hawke, David Tennant, Classics Illustrated, and many more covered every episode at fireandwaterpodcast.com or where you usually get your podcasts. Silence. ...of the second kind, physical evidence of a UFO. Close encounters of the third kind, contact. From Steven Spielberg, the director of Jaws, comes one of the most ambitious and unusual films ever made. And what you will see has never been seen before. It's a cosmic mystery crossing what many scientists believe will be the next threshold of human experience. 
is called Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It begins in an Indiana town and leads to one inescapable conclusion. We are not alone. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Certificate A. Now showing at the Odeon Leicester Square. Welcome back, Tomb Believers. We are back now with our very special guest. We've been talking, of course, about Man Thing Volume 3 this in these past two episodes. And we are honored to have with us the writer behind that volume, J.M. Debateus. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? We're, we're, we're doing, doing very well. well. Um, Please as punch to have you. Yes. Um, and, and of course we, we've really enjoyed talking about, uh, this man thing story arc. Um, I just have to say before we get started that, um, some of the stuff you've done, both Marvel, DC and elsewhere are some of the best, some of my favorite comics that I have read, uh, since I was a kid. Uh, I oh, love the Dr. You. Fate book, the Dr. Oh, uh, the Dr. Strange stuff that you've done. Um, you contributed to some of my favorite episodes of Justice League Unlimited, <laughs> So, so just all over the place. Uh, I am, I'm thrilled to have you here to, to, for pick your brain about some of this stuff. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm happy to, to let you pick within reason. <laughs> <laughs> um, so basically one of our first things is, um, how did this series come to be? Like, how did, how, what was the development process for the Man Think series? Well, let's keep in mind that this was, a long time ago. So <laughs> sure. I'm gonna, sure. my, my memory, my memories will probably be accurate to the essence of it. My details may be all wrong. I don't like to pretend, you know, when people ask people, you know, they're writing their biography. And I remember in 1932, when I said to so-and-so, it's like, yeah, no, you didn't. Um, <laughs> so I'll, I'll do the, I'll do the best I can. Marvel was launching this strange tales line. I think in their mind, they were going to compete with vertigo, you know, mm-hmm. that was actually our next question was, was vertigo part of the conversation? I, I believe I believe so, you know, and I, I and I was part of the Vertigo launch and I was actually yes. part of Epic, Epic Comics at Marvel before then. Um, so that, you know, I was very familiar with and comfortable in that world. And and what was interesting was in the beginning, it was like, oh, you know, all the rules are gone. You know, you can have nudity, you can have sex, you can have, you know, use any words you want. It doesn't really matter, blah, blah, blah. And so everybody gets to work on these books. And, and Mark Bernardo was the editor on that book, really he was only editing at Marvel for, in the scheme of things, a short time, but a really, really talented editor and a really nice guy. I loved working with him. Um, I think he's gone on to edit in the magazine world instead. Um, so Mark approached me about Man-Thing, and Man-Thing, Steve Gerber's run on Man-Thing is one of my all-time favorite comic book runs. I mean, I love, 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 love Gerber's work and Man-Thing, uh, especially with, well, he, he had a lot of great artists on there, but the stuff with Mike Plug, especially, uh, was just, you know, he and Plug together were quite a team, but Val Mayerick, there were a lot of different people that worked with him on that. Just great, great comics of the seventies that really sort of took all the, all the barriers and just knocked them over and just told these amazing stories that were unlike anything you'd ever seen in comics before. So when Mark Bernardo said man thing, I was like, yeah, of course, you know, <laughs> and, and Mark to his eternal credit said two things to me. One, he said was, what do you think if the whole thing is about a quest to uh, to retrieve the shattered fragments of the nexus of realities? And I went, fantastic idea. And he, then he said, what do you think if we bring back Ted Salas's wife? And I went, fantastic idea. <laughs> and then from there, so I give Mark all the credit for those two ideas. And from there, we were off. And Liam Sharp came in 
and I had and I'd worked with Liam on I think on a Spider-Man backup story somewhere along the way. Um, but but you know so and but he was still relatively new and I was a little uncertain about his work at that point. And then they showed me this man thing piece that Liam had done, and he has he has used he's uh, put it out there on social media several times. This gorgeous, detailed, beautifully inked, incredible piece of work. And I was like, oh yeah, I think he'd be great for this. And it took us all of five minutes to develop a creative chemistry that was, you know, really, really unique. I've said this before, but when it comes to comics and writer artist chemistry, you can't create it. It's either there or it's not. It's like the chemistry between people. You meet somebody, you either connect with them or you don't. They may be the nicest person in the world, but you're having a conversation and it's just not happening, you know? (laughs) So, um, with with Liam, uh, it was just instantaneous, and he was just doing brilliant, brilliant work. I mean, you know, it's 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 we're we're diving into a sort of corner of of comics that I love. So it gets into supernatural, it gets into the mystical, but it's also very character driven as well. It allows you to really, really work with mood and 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 metaphysical concepts and great character work. And and I remember we got to the end of the first issue. And I had a scene where I think Man-Thing was being shot at by the sheriff of the town, whatever. And Dr. Strange shows up at the last minute, throws up this mystic shield, you know, and, and deflects the bullets. And I get and now we, we work Marvel style. Marvel style is not what a lot of people think when Stanley would call up an artist and say, hey, let's bring back Dr. Doom. And they go and they draw 22 pages. That's not Marvel <laughs> style. Marvel style is I write a lengthy, detailed plot, often page by page, sometimes panel by panel. And then the artist draws it. But the joy is that then I get the artwork and I do the final script in reaction to the artwork. And it gives the artist room to play. So I get to the last page of the story. And what Lee, I remember to this day, what Liam had done was the bullets hit the shield and they turned into butterflies. That was his touch. And I went, oh, it's a lovely moment. This guy is good, you know, and it was and I think Liam would say the same thing because we we talk about it uh, whenever man thing comes up on, on social media. It was just a magical collaboration. Some guys could sort of go off and play with the plot and it would drive me crazy. But anything Liam ever did to kind of twist and turn the visuals and spin them around, I always loved it. And I always knew just how to interact with it. And that's, that's again, it's down to chemistry. It's down to how my eye takes in that artwork and then how I can then turn that around in the words, you know? So we really, I feel like my plots inspired him. His artwork inspired me. It was a great, great, great collaboration. And that's something we noticed in, in when we were reviewing the the issues. Like you kind of ease people into the, as we call it, the trippy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the issue starts out f- fairly normal, down to earth, right? But as you Rounded, get further yeah. in, especially like when Doctor Strange shows up, it gets trippy. And then right. you know you get a few more normal things in earlier issues, but by the time we get towards like the back half of the series, like around the time Namor shows up, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And when you know that when you know that your artist can do that, then that allows me the freedom to really lean into that. If Liam wasn't capable of really getting out there and trippy, then I'd have to restrain that element a little bit. But Liam could do it so I could follow my metaphysical muse wherever it led me. It it also seems like and this may speak to the the time that, that the book was being uh, written and, and coming out. But it seems like he was starting to experiment with digital art production as the book went on. Um, and that had an effect on things. Yeah. Yeah. That w- and that came in, that came in more later on, but yeah, he did. He started to play. He started to play. So the other, you know, you want behind the scenes. So originally we're told like, this is going to be like vertigo. You have freedom to do whatever you want and blah, 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 blah. 
And then there was a change in management. <laughs> and and they came in and went, we're not putting stuff out with, you know, with, <laughs> you know, with people saying fuck and people having sex and blah, 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 you know. And at first I was very upset and I was upset really because we had been told one thing and then told another. And mm-hmm. I forget, you know, it's been so long, I forget who the guy was in charge. And he was a really good guy. We had a great conversation about it. Totally understood his point of view. And I realized for the story I was telling did not matter in the least. Now, I think they had to pull the plug on one of the other books, uh, maybe the Hellstorm book or something. There was some other book that I think Warren Ellis was doing. And by by changing the rules, it really sort of screwed that book up. But for our book, I realized, oh, so what if we can't say fuck and you don't see a naked breast? It has no impact on my story whatsoever. You can still tell uh, an adult story, you know, does not mean you have to lean into language and nudity. In fact, often when you lean too hard into language and nudity, you're not really telling an adult story. You're telling a story that's really cool to adolescents, you know? It was a direct market book, right? It wasn't newsstand yeah. at all. Yeah, it was direct market. Yeah. And my, my memory is sort of the, the last two standing were, were your Man-Thing book and uh, Werewolf by Night, maybe. Right, right. Which had that great Leonardo Manco artwork. Speaking of great artwork, oh my God, that Very book was good. beautiful. Um, anyway, so I, you know, after all this hubbub, I realized, oh, we're fine. It doesn't matter. And in fact, by by doing that, then there was less of a problem in bringing in, you know, regular characters from the from the from the the clean Marvel universe. You know, so that, that was another thing I wanted to to talk about. Was uh, it did seem like part of the structure of the story was every two or three issues there was a guest star. Um, you'd have Doctor Strange to kick things off, and then. Uh, the the Devil Slayer stuff uh, it came after that, and Howard the Duck, and Namor, and Silver Surfer. Uh, was that uh, by design? Were, were there restrictions on what characters you could or couldn't use, or uh, was, was that were those always the plan? If there were, I don't. I really don't remember. I mean, my just general memory is there were different pieces of the Nexus, so it could lead you to different stories and different characters. I'm wondering if had we gone the original way. Had it really been like a Vertigo book with all that freedom to do those other things, if they would not have allowed us to use those characters, you know, um, obviously they allowed us to use Doctor Strange because he was in the first issue right from the get go, and I was probably writing Doctor Strange at the same t- at that time, and I was writing. And, and it's, it seems like Strange and Devil Slayer you'd have leeway with because who even really knows who Devil Slayer is? Right, I knew Devil Slayer because I used him when I wrote the Defenders years before that. Right, and, and, loved, and that was, that we, we talked about uh, that was where Devil Slayer met Man Thing was in Defenders. That's right. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you remember more than I do. And Silver <laughs> Surfer, I was writing at the same time, and and um, but yeah, so so there might have been more more issues had we leaned into that uh, quote, and I'm putting it in quotes, adult material. But it didn't matter, and that allowed us to play with those other characters in a way that nobody could object to. And and it seemed like uh, the the Namor section of the story in particular was kind of setting up something bigger for Namor. There was this expansion of the Atlantis mythology and Namor's place in it. And I wonder if that was something that sort of you had floating around your head to to come back to later. Or was that something that you deliberately left for other writers to pick up on or, or yeah, where were you going? You know, in my head, it wasn't about setting up anything for anybody. It was just about telling a good story. And I remember I have this. I, I was I have a lot of these books that deal with spirituality and mysticism. And I pulled this one book off the shelf, which got into all this mythology about Atlantis that I'd never heard about before and these different gods and all these things. Um, and I thought, God, this is fascinating. I want to fold some of this into this story. 
And it just allowed me to kind of take that mythology and expand it in a different way, in a way that I don't think it had been done before. And if you ask me and if you ask Liam, I bet you would both say that those two issues are our favorite issues from the entire run. I love. I really I still, enjoyed that section. Yeah, I can look back at those two issues and is, I'm, I'm proud of the whole run, but those two issues especially. And Liam, art-wise, just like he transcended himself he just transcended himself it was just uh, you know like i said when you get that rhythm and that chemistry between a writer and an artist it's magic and and we hit that little magical sweet spot and one of the one of the the saddest things about the whole run was that we kept getting canceled constantly and we never got to tell our stories we had plans i know i had plans in my head we could have gone on with that book for years i mean years we had so we were going to completely revamp that character and change it completely. And as we, as you'll see when we get to this story about the annual, that's not the way it worked out. So famously, um, or perhaps infamously, the Strange Tales imprint seemed to fold, as it they were. They really didn't give it a chance. I mean, they did not give it a chance. So the, and it was, it was the late, the latter part of the '90s, where we were right on the edge of when the boom was going to start turning into a bust. Mm-hmm. And I think that they were probably panicking about stuff up there. Um, you'd have to talk to somebody who was in, you know, involved in the publishing decisions. But that was the feeling I had because they did not give us room to breathe and grow. Because that was a book that had they given us room to breathe, uh, I think would have would have really sustained itself. So they canceled the book, and you get so you get a call. Hey, the book's canceled. Oh shit, the book's canceled. We're having such a great time on this book. Oh, but but we're going to take your book and Werewolf by Night and we're putting it together into a book called Strange Tales. Oh, great. So we can continue our story, which we probably had already written the next issue. I'd already written the next issue and probably the one after that. We were in process. Um, well, that's great. And so we just we get into Strange Tales and they say, "Oh, I think it was made have been before the book even came out or when it first came out. Well, they're canceling the book." But- Oh. With like with like issue four or something like that. I, right. I'm going to get the, the numbers three wrong. Three and four were solicited. Yeah, right. And I'm like, oh well, we better see if we can find a way to wrap this story up by issue four. Do something, you know. And like I said, we had, I had, we both had, we had big plans for where this was going to go. We're going to have a whole new man thing by the time we were done. I don't know if you remember that. Al- at one point, my man thing turns into this albino being with the staff and all that. Yep. And mm-hmm. We were going to have a new host for man thing. Uh, Ted Sales and his wife were going to go inside the nexus to be protectors of the nexus while this new band thing took on a whole new role we were introducing a whole new cast of characters i don't know if you remember that character sorrow shows up yeah. at mm-hmm. one point maybe in our last issue with all these other characters behind her and right. sorrow gonna be and a- sorrow and devil slayer sort of show up again yeah right. with these characters that i don't know if we even had the, mentioned the name but they were going to be called the fallen the fallen stars and so we were going to have a whole new mythology all this great stuff coming up and so oh no we're canceled after four issues. Okay, well, let's see if we can wrap it up. And so we're starting to work on wrapping it up. And then the word comes down, no, we're canceling you after two issues. So we were canceled three times. You know? wow. We we never got to finish the story. Somewhere in a drawer here, I have I have a couple of the plots for the last issues. I have uh, copies of some of Liam's art for one of the issues, you know. Uh, but it's it's one, you know, you get used to this stuff on one level as a freelancer because it's always the luck of the draw and you never know what's going to happen. But that's one of those things where you look back and you go, God, that could have been so good if they just would have left us alone for a little while longer. We could have really, really taken off with that book. But getting canceled three, you know, getting canceled once is hard enough. Getting canceled right. three times is difficult. And right. it's sort of Lucy with the football. Right. Exactly. exactly. And at certain points, uh, like in the middle of that first issue of Strange Tales, you can kind of see where Liam Sharp had drawn that 
as the next issue of man thing. Mm-hmm. And then I guess you guys got the notice that you were canceled. So I got put in a drawer somewhere. It seems like, and then I don't know if we put in a drawer because I think we kind of rolled right from Man Thing into Strange Tales. I don't think there was a big gap between the end. There's a slight change in art style partway through that first Strange Tales. I think that was just because Liam was experimenting. Okay, so that that was just the trying digital because it it does take on a more digital look. Yeah, and I remember he I remember he got he got into airbrushing there for a while. I remember there was especially was that the Silver Surfer issue? Yes, yes, yes. He he got very very fell in love with his airbrush there for a little while. I remember that. Yeah yeah yeah. Which for the Silver Surfer was like a good thing to do. You want to airbrush? That's that's another surfer. issue that's just gorgeous. The the yeah. uh, man yeah. thing sprouting wings and flying on the alien landscape is just gorgeous. Yeah yeah. Uh, you yeah. know they should. I I would love to see them reprint those issues. And I would yes. love to get together with Liam. And I have no idea what our what our conclusion was going to be. Like I said, I have a couple of plots. Um, sure. I think it I think it, it led to the end of the universe, if I recall correctly. Um, this happens, <laughs> which which does happen, especially when you're dealing with the nexus of all realities, you know. But I would love to get a chance to kind of take what we had and and play around with it a little bit and do like some some big you know 48 page end story so you could reprint those stories and have a new story it'd be really really great and and you know lee and i talk periodically about we got to find something to do together we got it it's been so many years we did we did a, a superman thing at at uh at dc in the early 2000s but that's the last time we we've actually collaborated and i would love love the chance to work with him again if you've seen his recent work he, you know, if he transcended himself on Man Thing, he's trans- transcended himself five times since this book Starhenge that he has out now. It's just absolutely breathtaking. It's gorgeous. So Strange Tales ends abruptly. You've got two unpublished issues. Yeah. How does it end up in Peter Parker Annual 99? Oh, good God. Um, you know, through the best of intentions and the worst of results, I would say. <laughs> Uh, Ralph Macchio, who was editing Spider-Man at the time, who I had a very, very good relationship with. He was a really excellent editor and a good guy. Um, he came to me and he said, well, you know, well, first of all, there was talk that they were going to print those last issues. So that's the first most important piece of this. They're going to print these last issues. They're going to do a one shot or something. They'll print these last issues. And then he said, well, you know what's going to happen is now someone's going to come along and undo everything you guys have done. So why don't you at least be the guy to get Ted Salas back to being a normal man thing again? Because, you know, left to somebody else's hands, that's just what they're going to do. So I'm working on to the assumption that they're going to reprint these two issues, right? Not not far from when we're going to do this story. So I'm writing a story that is referencing stories that have not been printed. And that, as it turns out, were never printed. So on right from the get-go, this story makes no sense because we're referencing things that never happened you know it is um, the only time i've ever seen an editor's caption explaining yeah. that events being described occurred in unpublished material yeah yeah i know it was crazy it was absolutely crazy and then i forgot what happened by the time we did the story liam was only able to do half the issue so he did the trippier stuff uh another artist whose name escapes me at the moment uh, he was ve- very good. There was nothing. It was his art was excellent, but the mm-hmm. two styles just did not mesh. Mm-hmm. The two styles, you know, the, 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 it was night and day. You know, if, if one of them had done the whole story, it would have been a different thing. But the two styles kind of collided, and I'm trying to, you know, to to basically write an ending to the story, which is not the ending that I intend intended, referring to stories that haven't been printed and were never printed. So the whole thing was just sort of uh, a confusing mess. 
Um, that artist was Al Rio. Yeah, and he did an excellent job. But like I said, the the two styles I think fought with each other because they were so mm-hmm. diametrically opposed. And you you kind of tied into some stuff you had done with Spider Man, like the the Scryers and um. I don't even remember, you know. I was trying my best to make sense of this stuff. And yeah, the, the, them- you introduced sort of a, a Scryer Prime who has taken over the cult after Norman Osborn. Right, because, well, there was, there was a Scryer character. I don't know if that was, it was the Scryer character that I introduced, I think, in The Silver Surfer, who was sort of like yep. this mm-hmm. cosmic god Scryer that all the other Scryers had taken their inspiration from. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah. It, he becomes sort of the master manipulator behind everything. Oh, um, I don't see. I don't even remember. Okay, because yeah, that's, that's, that's sort of the the twist at the end. He he, uh, Man Thing absorbs the Nexus into himself, uh, sort of breaking the the rules of the game they've agreed to play. Mm-hmm. And, and and Scryer sort of says, "Well, maybe that's what I wanted to do. Wanted you to do all along, because now it's in a mortal host, and I might be able to attack it better." So oh, so it, 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 it there, there was bad. sort of opening for further storytelling right. there if someone right. had, had picked up on it right. um yeah well maybe i'll pick up it now all these years later who knows <laughs> yeah so that was you know that was sort of a, a sad end to what i consider like a real creative highlight of my career um like i said just you know the 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 the, the chemistry with liam and having a wonderful editor like mark bernardo having our backs on that it was really really a great time working on that book and i'm just to this day i'm i'm sad that it ended the way it did well, of course, sure. you're at least you're, at least you're staying active. You have a Kickstarter um, on right now. Yeah. So, what, what can you tell us about the Demultiverse? Oh, that was a good transition. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what can I tell you? Well, you know, since the beginning uh, of my career, I've gone back and forth between doing the established kind of Marvel and DC stuff and doing my own creator own stuff going all the way back to Moonshadow and, and Blooded Tale back in the 80s. And then, you know, working with Vertigo and, and and other publishers on my own creator own stuff. So I'm always looking for new, van- and I'm always developing new ideas. I mean, my whole career, it's been like that. I, I, you know, I'm doing the established characters. I'm doing creator own stuff. I'm writing for TV. I'm writing film. I'm writing prose. I like to jump around because it keeps me fresh and keeps me creative. If I just did one thing, I think my brain would explode, you know? So by moving between genres between you know even even within the superhero stuff you know there's like the funny stuff that i do do with giffen and there's the serious psychological superhero stuff there's a there's the supernatural stuff so i'd like to jump around and with the creator own stuff i'm always looking for new venues and i've 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 looked at kickstarter over the years and thought "Hmm, that would be interesting i'd love to do a kickstarter and then uh, i think oh but it's so much work not the creative work but the other work that goes into the the business end the building and maintaining and for 30 days constantly hyping the Kickstarter, you know, to get the results that you that you want. And I just didn't I don't have the nervous system to do that by myself. And I have a friend named David Baldy, who I met a few years ago. He took one of my writing classes. He's a TV writer and producer, worked in TV for like 20 years, big comic book fan. We got to talking about this and he said, well, I'd love to help you with the Kickstarter. I'll, I'll, I'll basically, you know, I'll take care of all that stuff that you don't want to do. Um, and, and which frees me to focus on the creative end. And although the way it turned out was, you know, David provided feedback for me on the creative end. I got more involved in the business end. So we really became full partners in this thing. But just to have another person to go into this with 
freed us up to go, okay, let's do it. And then we started talking about, well, what do you want to do? Well, like I said, I always, I've always got ideas, things that I've been developing, some of the things that I actually started writing during the pandemic. Others were ideas that I had around for years that I've been developing and developing. You know, as a writer, you put it away, it goes away for a year, you pull it out again. You, oh, this is interesting, but maybe I can do this with it. And on and on and on. So I pitched him like four different things, thinking that we would pick one of them and go ahead and do like a four or five issue miniseries and kickstart that. And David said, well, why don't we do all four of them? And I went, ooh, that's an interesting idea. So, you know, what we ended up doing and what we are doing right now, the Kickstarter is, is active right now and goes, we're in our last week or so, it goes till November 10th. Um, essentially, four pilot episodes, four number ones of four series that are in different genres, different tones, different styles, with four artists that I absolutely love as collaborators. We also got four amazing artists to do alternate covers. Liam Sharp, who I've been singing his praises this whole time, has done the cover for our collected edition, which is just mind-blowingly gorgeous. And, And it's just turned into this amazing, amazing endeavor. And David built this new imprint called Spellbound Comics around these four books. And we're off to the races and we're, it's going really, really well. The, we had it, we set an initial goal. We set it low because we wanted people to know this is not one of those things where it's going to go on for a month and you're never going to get your books. Once we hit this initial goal, everyone that, that contributes to the Kickstarter is going to get their books where these are going to be printed and you're going to get them. The other thing that's important to mention is that all the books are about 90% done right now. So there's not going to be sitting around for a year or two waiting for these books to be finished they're just about done right now. We're waiting for some coloring, some final lettering, things like that. Otherwise, we're done. Uh, so basically, once this wraps up, we have to we will put the, the collected edition together. Um, for the collected edition, I'm going to be writing introductions to each of the stories to explain their genesis. We're going to have art and scripts and all kinds of fun things in the back. My old buddy Tom DeFalco is writing a foreword for the book. It's going to be a really, really nice package. So you have your choice of the four books, plus the four books with alternate covers, plus the collected edition, and a bunch of really cool rewards. And we have one more exciting thing that we're going to be announcing probably today that I can't tell you yet. But if you follow social media or go to the Kickstarter site, you will find out. Very cool. And, and of course, for people who do the collected edition option, they get to vote on which one gets a follow-up not, issue first, yes. right? Not just not just them. Anyone who either if you get all four of the first issues okay. or you buy the collected edition, then you get to vote on which one is the first of these four to continue to full series. Yeah. Right. So it's not that any of them get voted off the island. It's just which one oh, no. moves up on the list. Nothing's getting voted off the island. One way or the <laughs> other, all these books are going to make their way out into the world. You know, I have the, the flexibility to, you know, we can go ahead with the one that they choose, run another Kickstarter, finish that series, maybe run another after that. Or I can then take these to another publisher somewhere and, and do put the series out that way. There's a lot of a lot of leeway, but all of these are going to make their way out into the world one way or the other. That's that is my intention anyway. I mean, life is surprising, but that's the intention. And I'm looking at the four titles now, and they all look amazing. And I really want our listeners to go out and look at these. Yes, we will put we will put the link in our show notes. So uh, if you go to our our website, you'll you'll see the link right there. We'll put it on our our uh, social media too. Um, because you really should look at some of the art that, that's on the Kickstarter page. Some people, I think, are leery of Kickstarter for whatever reason. They don't like Kickstarter. You can also get these books directly from SpellboundComics.com and bypass Kickstarter uh, completely if that's not what you want to do. And the same thing, if you buy all four of the collected edition from Spellbound, you still get to vote. So there's that. Very cool. But we've got Layla in the land of the after, of after, excuse me. 
Well, um, why don't anyway. we go through them one at one at a time, and I'll give you the basic uh, the basic spiel. On each that of sounds them. great. Exactly what I was asking for. <laughs> okay. So since you mentioned Layla first, first of all, I'm doing Layla with Sean McManus. Sean McManus and I uh, worked together for two years at DC on Doctor Fate, one of my all time favorite runs on anything. Um, you know, one of the great things about the '80s is that we had a lot of freedom to do these books, even when they were quote corporate characters our own way. And Dr. Fate, basically a couple of years later, it would have been a vertigo book. I mean, Karen Berger and Art Young were the editors and they gave me the freedom to completely tell that story in the most personal way. I just reread the four issue miniseries the other day. It's on oh, right. the DC yeah. infinite app and it's wonderful. Yeah. yeah the, oh, the mini, the, the, the miniseries I did with Keith Giffen did the art in the miniseries. And then oh, right, right. four issues of that. And then two years with Sean. I think the ongoing is in, in the, the app too. So people yeah, can, I think, can I find think both it is. of them. I think it is. So Sean has always been one of my favorite collaborators. You know, I'm going to say this about all these guys, but I've been so lucky in that I've got to work with so many incredible artists over the years. You know, so many incredible artists that I, oh, yeah. it's almost, it's almost too much in my mind to contain when I think about all of them, you know, even when I, you know, when I, I'll, I'll sidebar for a second, even when I first started out in the business, a lot of the guys I grew up reading and loving were still in the business. So I, when I started, I had stories illustrated by Gil Kane and John Buscema and Steve Ditko and Don Heck and these guys that were like, you know, when I was a kid reading Marvel comics, these were the guys. And so uh, I feel very, very blessed in terms of the artists I've I've been able to work with over the years. So sidebar over Layla in the lands of after it's, it's about a girl. She's 13 years old. She's biking home from her friend's house one chilly October night, not unlike the evenings, although today it's 70 degrees. So I don't know. That screws up the whole thing. Um, <laughs> but it's a chilly October evening. The leaves are falling. She suddenly finds herself enveloped in a ball of, of light, lifted up into the air, carried away where, I don't know, over the rainbow, through the looking glass, uh, through the, uh, it, she lands in, in this magical land where, where the trees, where the trees have faces and the rivers can sing and the and the animals speak and is is she in Oz is she in Wonderland where is she? Well, what it turns out a few minutes later when she meets the her uh, this cat who turns out to be her dead cat who was uh, who died five years before and then she runs into her grandfather who's been dead for several years and she realizes no this is not Oz this is not Wonderland this is not Narnia this is the afterlife and that light that enveloped her that was the car that ran her down. And wow. So but well, that's a good response. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> oh. So you have but, my attention. <laughs> so, but Layla's only thirteen, and she says, and you know, she's basically a shy, awkward kid. But she's like, I'm only thirteen. I refuse to be dead. Essentially, there has to be a way to get out of this. So, with the help of her grandfather and her cat, and this other character that we call the not quite fallen angel, they're looking for a way to get Layla back to 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 life before the window of opportunity closes. And they have to travel through the lands of after, lands plural, because in my conception, the afterlife is is composed of mind and imagination. So that anyone who dies essentially creates the afterlife that they expect. So if your thing is angels with wings floating on, on clouds playing harps, that's what you'll get. If you're some guilt-ridden person who's afraid and worried about all the, quote, bad things you've done in your life and you're afraid you're going to burn in hell, you'll create a hell of your own making. If your idea of the greatest afterlife is to be 10 years old again playing stickball in the streets with your friends, that's what you'll get. There are as many afterlives as there are souls in the afterlife and even more beyond that. So in order to get back, she will have to journey through many different lands of after to try to get back home. So that's the premise of Layla. That's the first one. That's not just a good comic. That's a good 
on you know multiple film streaming service series guys if anybody out there here's that idea <laughs> wait let me lean let me lean into the microphone netflix amazon are you listening <laughs> go ahead pick another one we have any man so any man uh, that's being done with a wonderful artist named david baldion david and i just did a series for marvel called ben riley spider-man which was my return to the ben riley character after many years and just Fell in love with David's work. He's, I'm going to say this about all these guys, but it's true. Phenomenal artist. And each of them, I think, is is hitting some kind of peak on these stories. So they just, you know, David did phenomenal work on Ben Riley. Then I look at the pages that he did for Any Man. It's like, oh, my God, he topped himself. So of the four, Any Man, on the surface, at least, seems like it could be the most traditional superhero story. But even this, all these stories are fairly large. Any Man takes place over the span of 50 years. It starts in uh, 1969, where a portal opens in Times Square. This costume figure comes through, who tells uh, everyone that he has come from millions of years in the past. He's the lone survivor of an ancient civilization, kind of like what we did actually in Man-Thing with Atlantis, a really beautiful, perfect golden age where, where everything is, is, is magic and perfection, but something happened. Their own arrogance, their own hubris, they overstepped, brought this whole civilization down. He's the last survivor. He has come through to what he says is the crisis point in our own history to help us prevent the fate that befell his people millions of years ago. Over the course of the next many years, over the course of decades, 50 years, he becomes a global hero looked up to not just, you know, in once, not just in Gotham and Metropolis, not just in the United States, not really Gotham and Metropolis, I'm just picking examples, uh, but across the world. He is revered all over the world. There's only one problem. His entire story is a complete fabrication. So all this business about where he came from, what he's doing, all this is, is a lie. So the question becomes, that's the first twist. So who is he really? Why is he here? Who created him? Who cooked up this story? And then there is a twist beneath that twist, which I, I'm not going to get into, obviously. And it, it opens the door again on this saga that's going to jump back in time between present day, which in the terms of this book is 2019, and events that happen over the course of these 50 years. And that's any man. Very nice. Wow. And then we have Godsent. Godsend, yeah. Okay. So the funny thing about Godsend is I named it Godsend. Matthew Dow Smith, the artist, always reads it as God's End. And oh. I realized both titles work for this story. It's kind um, of a pun, yeah. Yeah. My my one liner is Kirby Gods meets Philip K. Dick meets The Matrix. I I love stories about personal identity, about the gap between who we think we are and who we really are, the gap between what we perceive reality to be and what really lies beneath the skin of reality. And and Matthew Smith and I, let me say something about him too, another amazing artist. We've worked together on a couple of smaller projects. We did a a, a Star Trek thing a couple of years ago for IDW. We did a Batman thing for DC. But this is the first big project that we're doing together. So in a nutshell, our main character is named Eric Small. He's a junior high school teacher, mid to late 30s, a sad, overweight, unhealthy, depressed, fairly miserable human being. I, I like to say, you know, most of us, not all of us, but let's say many of us have that little voice in our head. No matter how confident we are, how successful we are, is that little guy that lives back there that tells us we're small, that we're ineffectual, that 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 we're worthless. That little voice. And Eric is almost like the embodiment of that little voice. He really, really had horrible dysfunctional childhood. It's just a broken down soul. Now, into this world 
uh, descends the celestial blue-skinned being that the media dubs Godsend, um, some some godlike figure who we think is here for the good, but we're not really sure because no one knows who he is or where he came from. Maybe he's here to destroy the world, to cleanse the world. We don't know, but Eric becomes completely obsessed with this figure. I always liken it to one of my favorite movies, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and Richard mm-hmm. Dreyfuss's obsession with the UFOs when he's building that giant thing out of mud in the basement, you know? This means something. Yes, exactly. And that's what it is for Eric. He feels this connection to this being, and he doesn't know why. He just feels that it's really, really important, and he has to figure it out. And he discovers that other people feel the same way, that this being is touching something in everyone, but no one's quite sure what or why. And one day, into Eric's living room, strides this seven-foot-tall being with a turtle's body and a man's head. And he says, get on my back. And Eric was like, what? (laughs) Get on my back. Well, when a seven-foot turtle walks into your living room and says, get on my back, you get on his back. And the turtle... The turtle, whose whose name is Korm, flies him out of there, and this begins a series of events that basically shreds Eric's sense of his own personal identity and shreds his own sense of what reality is, what he's taken reality to be up until that moment. And, you know, the thing with all of these being first chapters is I know where it's going. So I know that Godsend, although it's focused very much in the first issue on a smaller group of characters, is going to, like like popcorn popping, start popping out dozens of new characters as we go along, you know? So um, as excited as I am about the books as they are, I cannot wait to continue these stories. Godsend is going to be, I envision Godsend as like three, five-issue miniseries going down along the way. That sounds, the the, the points of comparison you're making are, kind of all of my favorite things in sci-fi and, and comics and movies. So oh, that's great. Uh, that's I, I am really fascinated by that. You're a Philip K. Dick fan? Uh, yes. Uh, I uh, Weirdly, the first Philip K. Dick that I remember reading was the collaboration he did with Roger Zelazny, uh, Diazire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but but of course, uh, do Android stream of electric sheep and, and all that. Have you read Ubik? I've not read Ubik, no. Oh, you must read Ubik. Okay. I'm sorry. The first thing you're going to do when we're done is buy a copy of Ubik and read it. I, I, I am adding that to my list right now. <laughs> that's 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 the PKD book that I've read, I don't know, four times over the years, something like that. I love that book. I mean, the, I, I love all his work, but but that book, I just, oh, the book is fantastic. I am a Philistine. I've only read Man in the High Castle. Oh, uh, sorry. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> go, then that's, then that's your assignment, too. You must, hey, so what you, do? you both go read Ubik and you can discuss it on your next podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this is a change, Trey. We're getting homework. <laughs> and, you're, and you'll be like, I don't know what he was talking about. I hated that book, you know? <laughs> anyway, um, our last book is called yes. Wisdom. And Wisdom is a supernatural Western. So I've never written a Western before in my life. And, uh, you know, people ask me about it and I, uh, and I, and I, I keep returning to the same touchstone, which is when I was a kid, uh, growing up, you know, in the, in the early sixties, Westerns were everywhere. Uh, and I looked this up recently. Uh, like when I was like six or seven years old, there were three networks, just NBC, ABC, and CBS. That was it. And a few local stations. There were like 27 Westerns on the air at the yep. same time. <laughs> and my dad made me watch all of them. Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow. And, you know, I, I put this on Twitter a few weeks ago. I, I, uh, I have a picture of myself like three, probably four years old in a complete cowboy outfit with the hat and the six guns riding my hobby horse. You know, I had a Lone <laughs> Ranger guitar. 
On the shelf behind me, I have a Roy Rogers figure and a Wyatt Earp figure that I probably got for my fourth birthday that I've held on to all these years, you know. But, you know, the, the Western obsession when I was a kid went away and years passed. And, and this is also an idea that goes back at least 10 years, maybe more. And I was laying in bed one day and I get what I call mind movies. This is the way a lot of stories come to me. And I'm laying in bed with my eyes closed and I start to see this movie. And in this movie, I'll oh, look, there's a guy on a horse. Oh, it must be a Western. Let's follow him and see where this is leading. Oh, really? He He's a sorcerer. It's, it's a supernatural Western. Oh, this is really... So what you hope then is you run. I run from bed into my office and write down as much of this as I possibly can. By the time I was done, I think it was one of the longest outlines. I, when I first got, I wrote like 40 pages of stuff about this series. Um, so wisdom... I, my one-liner is Dead, Deadwood meets the Lord of the Rings, because on mm. one level, it's a very gritty Western, and on another level, it is a big supernatural saga about stopping the great evil. He he, We, we follow him through his life, so we see, see how he began, which was as a pampered son of a rich businessman in upstate New York who wanted to had dreams of being a great actor, except that he couldn't really act, um, as he goes through his life and 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 faces certain tragedies that lead to the loss of his wife and child. And then this turn that turns him into uh, a murderous gunslinger and ultimately where he's he's tasked with uh, with becoming a sorcerer and protecting not just the West, but the world from this great darkness that's coming. That's the big cosmic thread. The personal thread is this same darkness has taken his wife and child that he thinks uh, they thinks they've died. They have been taken by this dark force as well. So it's sort of John Ford's the searcher on one level. He's got to go and find them and save them and redeem them. But he's also got to work on the other level and stop this great evil that's coming. And again, this is a story that, you know, it's big. I could I could write this one for years before we get to the end. And our, the artist is Tom Mandrake. So after hearing the story that I've just described, if you know Tom's art, you know that this is the perfect artist for this book because Tom, you know, just go look back, look at his work on the Spectre back in the day. He can do supernatural like nobody's business. And he's also got a reputation as a great artist for Westerns. So you put those two together and it's like Tom Mandrake. Of course we have to get Tom Mandrake, you know, and uh, just beautiful work that he's done on this issue. And it actually was colored by his wife, uh, Jan Dursema, who's also a wonderful artist in her own right. Uh, most of the books were letter, lettered by Taylor Esposito, who's worked for DC and many other companies, just won a bunch of awards this year as Best Letterer. Um, some of the coloring is done by a wonderful colorist named Arthur Hesley. On Godsend, Matt Smith had penciled, inked, lettered, and colored. Did the, did it all. And um, wow. And as for our alternate artists, for Godsend, my old buddy Kevin McGuire, not Godsend, I'm sorry, Any Man. Kevin McGuire did the, the cover for Any Man. Uh, J.H. Williams III, one of the most amazing artists out there, did the alternate cover for Layla in the Lands of After. For Wisdom, we have Dustin Yen. We just released that cover this past week so people could see it, and it's this phenomenal, horrific image. And the last uh, the last alternate artist is, is a mystery, which we're going to reveal in the final days of the campaign. And uh, that's for Godsend. And then Liam Sharp did the cover for the collected edition. So it's really, I mean, forget me for a minute, even if you hate my work. It's an extraordinary, <laughs> it's an extraordinary, and everyone has a right to not like anyone else's work. I'm fine with that. It's an extraordinary collection of talent that we have on these books. The art alone is worth the price of admission. I'm very, very proud of what we've done. I'm very excited about this project. And, you know, the last week of a Kickstarter, things kind of tend to slow down. So we really want anyone that's been hesitating to come on board. If you've enjoyed my work, if you enjoy the work of these wonderful artists, come on board uh, on this journey and you get to vote. 
which is the coolest yep. part, I think. Well, voting you, you is fantastic and great fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. And it really does sound like you have something for everyone here. Like you've right. so many different genres and styles and, and uh, types of stories and types of protagonists that, that this is a really great idea to, to sort of uh, launch those four titles simultaneously. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it is too. And I'll give David Baldy all the credit for that because it wasn't my idea. It was his. <laughs> I know as somebody who grew up hating Westerns, I'm actually really excited about wet wisdom because I love anything that turns that traditional Western on its head. Oh, good. And, that, good. Right. and like I said, um, I, if you've seen the sample pages that are out there from Tom, they're just, they're exquisite. They're they're really one of my favorite uh, Stephen King stories is uh, the dark tower, which in its own way is kind of playing with, with the Western and other genres. Right. 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 That's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the Kickstarter guys. Very cool. It's very exciting. Very exciting. Yes. And I think our listeners will feel the same way. Um, yes. Sir, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for not just writing Man Thing, but, you know, all of the things you've written. I didn't have a chance to even talk about how much I love your Justice League work. Oh, thank you. Guys, go out there, blow this Kickstarter up, you know? Absolutely. Um, and you, you mentioned the the Ben Riley Spider-Man. Um, our listeners know that I am one of the biggest Ben Riley fans that there is, uh, and, and I is. think the collection of that just came out. Yeah, it came out. I think the, uh, maybe in July. I think it was in July. Yes. Yeah. So okay. Yeah, it was fairly recently. Coming out next week, we have Spider-Man: The Lost Hunt, which uh, actually takes place in the same era as that Ben Riley story, except our focus now is on Peter and Mary Jane. When Mary Jane was pregnant, they were living in Portland. Peter has no powers, and somebody from Craven's past is hunting him, seeking revenge. And that's just the beginning. We get. I, I get to fill in a piece of Craven's backstory that has never been explained satisfactorily. And, mm. uh, and I introduce a new character who is the, the key. Oh, I always want, I'll, I'll tell you, I always wondered how did this, you know, he was, his parents were, were, um, fled Russia after the revolution. They were, they were wealthy, uh, and, and exactly the people that couldn't stay in Russia when the revolution came. They First came to the United States. And their and their their family fell apart. The father became a broken man. The mother ended up in a mental institution, committed suicide. So how did this guy uh, uh, somehow turn into that guy with the leopard skin pants and the rifle? You know, hunting in Africa and shooting Spider Man. So uh, one of the things that we get into in the course of the story through this new character that I introduce is that backstory and that missing piece of Craven's story, while telling the story of what's going on with Peter and if you remember a character named Gregor. Um, who was uh, was kind of Craven's right hand man, who was out there to get revenge for what happened to to Sergey and for Sergey's son Vladimir, who also died. And it, it's a really interesting story. And one of the most fun parts of it for me is that Peter has no powers. So when your right. main character, when your main superhero has no powers, you really get to explore what is it that that makes this man the hero that he is. And it's not that he can stick to walls or spin a right. web; it's who he is as a person, and that's what we get to explore in this story. All the responsibility, none of the power. Exactly. That's a great way to put it. That's a fantastic <laughs> way to put it. I may steal that. That's fantastic. You'll <laughs> you'll hear that in my next interview. <laughs> and I will send you a seven cent royalty. <laughs> well, no, thank I, you so no, much for being here. This has been a pleasure uh, hearing sort of your memories of, of the Man Thing book and, and everything else. Hearing about the Kickstarter, which I am very excited about. I'm, I'm going to decide which tier I'm going to... Oh, thank support you. Support very soon. And, you know, I know some people out there don't have, you know, disposable income right now. And if you don't, 
But if you like my work, so just spread the word. If you're on social media, yeah. just let people know that we're out there. I mean, we're doing really, really well, but we really want to take it over the top because we want to ensure a, a future for all of these books, you know? Sure. And, and it looks like you've got some some script stretch goals planned out too, that yes, yes. if you do hit those milestones, there will be additional exciting things to come. Yes. And there's a bunch of, there are some other things there. Uh, if you go to the Kickstarter page, and like I said, we're going to unleash one more probably later today that I'm very excited about that I think will will uh, people will be happy to see. Nice. That's great. Yeah. Well, again, sir, thank you so much for joining us. You are always welcome back at the tomb. Yes. Thank you for all the work you've done. Yes. And we're looking forward to the new books. So am I. (laughs) (laughs) Pleasure talking to you guys. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Tomb Believers. We're going to go ahead and go to another quick break, but then we'll be back letting you know how you can get in touch with us and telling you what's in store for next episode. So we'll see you after these messages. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast, a new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter, Batman, Doctor Fate, Black Canary, Fire, Ice, Maxwell Lord, Oberon, Captain Marvel, Rocket Red, Captain Adam, Mister Miracle, Guy Gardner, Booster Gold, Blue Beetle, Nort, and many, many more. Justice League International, blah ha ha podcast coming March 2016 as part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? If you think superheroes like me can fight all your battles for you, think again. Voting for your local, state, and federal representative lets you choose who's on your side and all the issues we face today. The little ones to the really big ones, too. But before you can vote, you need to register. So do it now. For registration forms or information on how to register, visit your local participating video store. Have a voice in your future. Register and vote. <laughs> and Tom Spider-Man sent you. Well, that was fun. That was exciting. Yeah, I am very, very hyped about those uh, Kickstarter books that that Mr. DiMatteis just told us about. Very hyped indeed. Speaking of hype, ladies and gentlemen, um, please make sure to go to iTunes. And we haven't done this one in a while. Yeah, go to iTunes <laughs> and give us a. Five star view. That's it's five, right? I believe whatever as many stars as they will let you give. Give us that. Yes, give us a fifty-seven star review on iTunes. Um, And if and if you can like give us a write-up, like 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 those posted comments, like actual written reviews, they make a difference in the algorithm. Uh, I, I don't know how that works exactly. The math is weird, but but not just the the number of stars, but if actually taking the time to write out a little something. Um, if you take the time to do it, it helps us out a lot. Yeah. And you know, it, it gives you more things to read because goodness knows I don't have enough already. <laughs> and speaking of things we'd read, I'm desperate. So please send this email. My, our email yes. address is tomb of ideas at gmail.com. Our, uh, Twitter is at tomb of ideas. Soon to have a freshly minted bought and paid for a check mark. I'm sure. The look Trey is giving me right now, ladies and gentlemen. 
<laughs> if you yeah. could kill a man through a Zoom call, I'd be dead right now. <laughs> um, yeah, while while Twitter still exists and has not totally imploded, we are still there. Oh, speaking of killing a man through a Zoom call, if you ever get a chance, watch the um, Shutter original to host. It's very good. Oh, host is great. I, I have it on great, Blu-ray. Yeah. You had a Blu-ray? I have it on Blu-ray. It, it's good. It's, it's very good. good. Yeah, it was a pandemic-era horror movie actually filmed over Zoom. Like, every actor was responsible for handling their own practical special effects in their part of the Zoom call. Oh, yeah. It, it's it's good stuff. Like, yeah. and it is legit terrifying. Yes. A, a seance is, is uh, performed over Zoom, and that's all I'm going to tell you. Yeah. Good, good stuff. And speaking of good, good stuff... We are proud members of the Cinepunks podcasting group. That's right. That means that at Cinepunks.com, that's Cinepunks with an X, you will find our entire back catalog of episodes, along with other great podcasts like Cinepunks, The Carnage Report, uh, Horror Business, Twitch of the Death Nerve, and more. Um, Of course, that's where you'll find our show notes for this episode, including the link to the Kickstarter that that Mr. DiMatteis just told us about, as well as repeated links to the contact information we just mentioned. And even the stuff we neglected to mention. For example, we can be found at facebook.com slash tomb of ideas. Right, right. Even even your old aunt and grandma can find us. (laughs) That's right. And... What do we have coming up next, James? All right, folks. We're going to give some homework for next episode. It is our first grab bag episode. And we are looking at Midnight Suns Unlimited, issue nine. As well as Power Man and Iron Fist, number 79. And then we're going to have a special guest on the show who's bringing us a special surprise issue. I can't tell you what it is now, but it's going to be big. You know, this is actually perfect because when we talked about the the idea, the inspiration for these grab bag episodes, it was when you bought the poly bag full of comics and you could see the one on the front and you could see the one on the back, (laughs) but you couldn't see the one in the middle. There you go. So, and, yeah. And so, our guest is bringing the one in the middle. <laughs> so, folks, we'll see you then. Thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, Tomb Believers, bye bye. Bye. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror podcast. Until next time, Tomb Believers. Excelsior! <laughs>